Hello and welcome to episode 8 of Cond. I'm Amy. And I'm Michael. Hi. Uh, today's story is a weird one because the subject of our story, I have no idea why they did this really or what they got out of it. It's a very weird one. And it starts with one of the most momentous events to have occurred in recent history. An event that no doubt everyone that's listening to this podcast will remember where they were when they heard the news of 9-11. Do you remember where you were or how you found out about that? I think I was in year nine, or maybe I wasn't year nine, but I was definitely in like secondary school. And I think we'd like had like a geography lesson, maybe. I, I remember the teacher telling us in the geography lesson. So uh, I think yeah. I think someone must have came in and told him. Ah, uh, similar to yeah, I remember I was doing games in a in a park down the road from our school with a PE teacher that I absolutely hated. And he got a text message about it. And then he told, he basically read the text out to the class. I just remember I heard it from the person that I probably hated most in the world at that time, which was my PE teacher. But anyway. Today's episode of the podcast focuses on one of the key figures to emerge following the fateful events of that day. This is the story of September the 11th's fake victim, Tanya Head. It's 8.52 here in New York. I'm Bryant Dumble. We understand that there has been a plane crash on the uh, southern tip of Manhattan. We understand that a plane has crashed into the World Trade Center right now. Oh, there's another one. Another plane just hit. Right? Oh, my God. Another plane has just hit. It hit another building. Today, we've had a national tragedy. Two airplanes have crashed into the World Trade Center in an apparent terrorist attack on our country. In the weeks following that day, America and the people of New York tried to return to a degree of normality. Whilst this was difficult for all residents of the city, it was particularly so for the survivors of the attacks. There was little to no established means of coming to terms with this sort of tragedy. Many survivors had lost friends and colleagues in the disaster, and many were racked with survivors' guilt. Even years on, those that survived were still struggling to come to terms with what had happened and trying to manage the effects of their trauma. Nearly two years later, a small group of survivors began meeting regularly in a Manhattan church hall to share their stories and support each other. Many found confiding with other survivors helped as these were the only people who really understood what they had been through. It began with a small group of just nine or 10 people But as news of the support group spread, the numbers attending began to rise till there was over 500 people registered with the group. Multiple meetings were now being organized with 100 spaces at each session. At the meetings, members who attended would share their stories of that fateful day with the only people who could really relate. One of the attendees' stories stood out. Tanya Head recalled to the group how she had been on the 78th floor of the South Tower. This was particularly poignant as it made her just one of 19 people who were above the point of impact that day who survived. However, her fiancé was in the North Tower and he didn't survive. The incredible story of her escape combined with the tragic loss of her fiancé grabbed the attention of people at the support group. Tanya spoke of how the dream of her wedding day, the thought of arriving at the church to greet her soon-to-be husband, is what kept her going on that day and enabled her to fight for her survival. Her account recalled how she managed to make it to the ground floor amongst mountains of bodies and rubble and the smell of burning skin. A volunteer firefighter 
Wells re-meet Crowther, grabbed her and took her out of the building. The next thing she remembered was waking up in hospital with a badly burnt arm. Tanya had proof of her claims too. Her right arm was severely disfigured. As she showed people her injuries, she recalled how jet fuel had washed over her arm. She even talked about how, whilst crawling through the chaos and carnage on the 78th floor that morning, she encountered a dying man who handed her his engraved wedding ring. She has since located his widow and returned the ring. What was particularly astounding for people who grew to know Tanya was how well she seemed to be coping. She had held onto her job and continued to work. She also threw herself into her newly founded Survivors Network, galvanising the members, organising fundraisers, preparing meetings and agendas and booking speakers. She even donated a large sum of her personal money to support the organisation. One member of the group even said, Tanya made me feel bad for not doing more. I could never give of myself as much as she seemed to give. So if you can't tell yet where this is going, she is a con artist. She wasn't there. She hadn't been in the towers. The thing I just don't get is what? why? Why is she doing this? It's a pretty sick thing to be doing, isn't it? Yeah, I have no idea. It just seems a bit weird. Within months of joining, the support group had been transformed by Tanya. She got the organisation officially recognised and even secured state funding. She also recruited a trauma expert to lead therapy sessions and support the other victims. You can't really fault anything she's doing as like she's helping a lot of people. She's recognising that this massive event is trauma and would be traumatic for people. And she is like, she's recognising that and getting experts in to kind of support them. She's doing a lot for the support group. Like she's organising meetings, she's, you know, getting the word out there, she's got them state funding. So actually for the support group, she's doing an awful lot of good. Just it's just her story that is utterly bizarre. And I mean you can't condone it, can you? You know, these people have been through real trauma and here she is saying, Oh, it happened to me too when it didn't Couldn't she have done that without pretending <laughs> she was involved? It's like volunteering for a charity. Yeah. She could have just volunteered to help that go forward. Yeah, she could have. She must have been able to have supported the group without having to have had been there. You know, if she'd have just said, look, I really feel for what you've been through. I want to support you. They're not going to have turned her down, are they? At this point in 2003, there was no way for survivors or relatives of the deceased to visit the site to grieve or feel some sense of closure. The site had been completely closed off and no access had been granted. The large metal gates to the site had become something of a tourist attraction, with people taking photos and even street sellers selling merchandise, including picture books of the attack. How utterly gross is that? Like now, I know the 9-11 like memorial, I went back in 2009, so it's probably changed quite a lot, but it's like really beautiful and like it's really respectful. It's scary that at one point it wasn't. Do you know what I mean? Like now, I think everyone's social you know, it's a real good tribute. Right. But before that was done, obviously, I don't know, maybe that's why it was done. I don't know. Yeah, quite possibly. So the tacky merchandise isn't a thing anymore. Anyway, no access to the site was allowed, even for those who had survived the attacks or lost somebody. They could not go somewhere quiet to reflect, and there was a general feeling amongst members of the support group that this was a major factor in how they were feeling and why they were struggling to deal with their trauma. 
In March of 2003, Tanya sent an email to all members of the support group. She revealed she'd negotiated access to the site. In the email, she wrote, During the visit, those of you who fill up to it will have the opportunity to descend to the bottom of the pit. I realise many of you still find it difficult to go to the site, so please think about it carefully. A month later, a small number of victims were allowed to go in to Ground Zero. Here's Carrie Sullivan, a member of the 9-11 Survivors Network. That was a huge step for me in my healing process because it was the first time that I could stand there um, and let go of some of the memories or talk about some of the memories that had happened that day. It was a first step kind of um, in the closure process. Tanya had quickly become not only a key figure in the organisation, but also a hugely inspirational one. Others admired her courage, determination and resilience in the wake of her incredible trauma. It's really difficult this, isn't it? Because I think if you go through any grief or loss, like you always look to somebody who's been through that, something similar, and that's the point of these support groups. And I know... I know when I've had my own sort of tragedy and I've had friends who've gone through similar has really helped me to know that they're okay. It's really like she's playing on that vulnerability. So it's really, it's really fucking weird. And it makes me feel really fucking uncomfortable. It makes me feel very uncomfortable as well. And I'm certainly not condoning what she's done, right? The lie is sick. Saying you were involved in that when you weren't is a despicable thing to do. But if the other survivors take some comfort in talking to her, and sharing their experiences with her. Is that a good thing? There's also that side of it. And obviously people are like, you know, it's reinstilling hope and all that. But the other side of it is they, they might be comparing themselves to her and being like, why can't I work or why can't I do that? Yeah, I think there's a lot of that actually, yeah. So in fact, it's actually probably making them feel worse. And in a way, like that might actually push them to do things, but also it might push them at a point when they're not ready. And when they don't feel ready and then that will just lead to an even bigger crash. And that's, that's, that's difficult, isn't it? It's like on one side, she's recognising the trauma and putting support in place. But then at the same time, she's undermining that. It could well. have a severely negative effect on them. Yeah. And that's without them knowing that she's a little liar. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's all that, oh, they are better than me. They can manage that. Comparing yourself to others. The following year, the 9-11 Survivors Network began writing workshops where attendees were encouraged to write about their ordeal, their experiences, their feelings towards those that sadly died or anything else they wanted to express. Here's an extract from Tanya's writing, quote, It hurts as much now as then. I still cannot understand why, why, why. I talked to Dave and told him I was sorry, but he doesn't answer. Our photos together are now only ghosts of a life I once had. My other half is missing, ripped away from us. Tanya began mailing out extracts of her writings to the rest of the Survivors Network and has started to develop a circle of fans. I have, again, no idea why she does this. She's now not just writing the stuff, but she's sending it out to 500 bereaved people or 500 traumatised people She's doing it for attention. Like, it must, that must be all it is, right? Tanya began writing more and more about her experiences and sharing it publicly. In one entry, she wrote about how she received a promotion at work, but she didn't feel worthy as her mind was almost always elsewhere, thinking of her lost fiancé. She also wrote of the courage she had mustered 
as she contacted the wedding dress shop that had been holding on to her wedding dress, telling them to donate it to charity. It's time, she wrote. The problem was, as Tanya Head continued to put her story centre stage in this way, observers began to notice inconsistencies in her story. While she told some people she'd lost her fiancé, in other accounts she recalled losing her husband. Very easy detail to remember that, surely. Like, even even if you have made this whole story up, you'd remember if you said he was your fiancé or your husband. But it sounds like she's not really doing it, like, mindfully. Like, she's, like, just coming out with all this, you know, BS, really, and being, like, writing all these things and, and not really getting a bit embroiled in the character, really. Yeah. So what you're saying is, like, every time she tells it, it's almost like a new performance. It's yeah. like a new audience. She's just making it up as she goes along. Yeah, exactly. So she's not really... Obviously, she's not really putting that much time into, like, the facts, is she? She's just, like... Interesting theory, yeah. Doubts had begun to emerge about Tanya's tale. One of the support group members, Jerry, asked Tanya what her fiancé or husband's surname was. She always referred to him as Dave, but never mentioned another name. She said the surname, and Jerry looked him up in the Book of Remembrance. Sure enough, there he was. When questioned, Tanya always appeared happy to answer. She would become emotional and vulnerable, but never refused to answer somebody's question. So he asks, he's obviously got a little bit suspicious. He's asked her, oh, so, so what was your husband's name? And she's told him her name, and now there he is in the book. That would probably dissuade you of any suspicion, wouldn't it? Like, you'd probably feel quite bad for even asking the question, I imagine. You'd drop, you'd drop your suspicion at that point, wouldn't you? Yeah, and also, like, if they were in there, you'd be like, oh, right, yeah. And then you'd probably be like, oh, I'm, I'm the worst person in the world for thinking that this woman is lying about her trauma. Do you know what I mean? So you'd also probably feel bad about questioning her. Absolutely, yeah. People are very trusting of trauma, aren't they? It's a bit like the Nicholas Barkley story we covered last week. Like, people trust his story about the fact he was sexually abused every night because you wouldn't make that up, surely. She wouldn't make this up about being involved in 9-11. People are very trusting of trauma. The profile of the Survivors Network was growing and more focus was being given to the plight of survivors almost exclusively thanks to Tanya. Tanya's story had reached the organisers of the new 9-11 Tribute Centre and it was decided that survivors' stories must feature in the memorial. On the fourth anniversary of the attacks, as the world's media gathered, the centre was opened by leading politicians. As far as the media were concerned, Tanya's story had the best of both worlds. Not only had she been there, experienced it and survived, but she had also suffered grief in losing her fiancé. Her story was the most tragic, but her approach since the events meant Tanya was becoming the heroine of the story. She was chosen to escort the mayor and dignitaries around in the first official tours of the centre. Throughout the day, Tanya looked very nervous. I mean, she looked nervous, but how would you behave in that situation? If her story was true, she'd be nervous as well. Like, I don't suppose anyone's judging her particularly for being nervous. I do wonder, like, what's she thinking at this point? She's now leading the tours to the mayor around the brand new 9-11 tribute, saying how awful it was. What's going through her head? What's she playing at? And also, like, from what from what I remember of, like, the tri- tribute, obviously it was about 10 years ago since I, I went, but it was... It was really powerful and, 
you read all their stories and the letters and I think there was even some voice recordings when it was happening when people contacted people I think and it was really really powerful and really sad and if you was to meet a survivor you'd feel like all kinds of emotion so she's also playing on the emotion of people that are just showing respect to the city, to the people that it happened, you know, people all the way around the world come and visit that tribute. You know, everyone remembers 9-11. That's a very good point. I hadn't even thought of that. What, what's interesting about her story is in this context, it's very hard to spot an imposter, isn't it? Because what would a survivor actually be like? How would someone who lost someone in those towers be like? You, you know, however she behaves, you would just think, yeah, fair enough. You wouldn't suspect somebody was lying, would you? And if you, and you know, it's worrying, isn't it, that you'd even have to question this <laughs> for somebody, you know. She told her story. She gave the tours. She was all over the news. Later that day, she emailed the members of the support network, evidently delighted with herself. She wrote, quote, Notice the amount of cameras pointing at me and notice who I'm giving the tour to. Don't ask me what I said because I have no idea. I was freaking out. Oh my God, I was totally overwhelmed and I had to tell my story. Lie aside, right? Obviously, I don't think much of her for telling this lie in the first place, but this is the first time that I properly hate her in this story where you can see she's almost getting a a kick out of it. Yeah, she's making me want to punch her in the face at this point, really. Tanya Head had everyone fooled. The survivors group, the politicians, the media and the public. Tanya's fame continued to grow, and as it did so, more questions about her story began to emerge. Back in May 2002, nine months after the attacks, the New York Times published the account of the last few minutes inside the towers, as told by people who were there. It was believed that the article featured a testimony from every survivor. However, in retrospect, it appeared there was one person missing. There was no mention in the article of Tanya Head. It is a difficult read, but the first-hand accounts are really powerful. Definitely worth it if you have a spare half an hour. We've posted a link to it in the description box to this episode. In her account of 9-11, Tanya recalled being dragged to safety by volunteer firefighter Wells Remy Crowther. On September 11th, 2001, Wells was just 24 years old and working as an equities trader His office was on the 104th floor of the South Tower of the World Trade Center. That was the second tower to be hit, with the impact happening at 9.03 a.m. Nine minutes later, Wells called his mum and left her the message, Mum, this is Wells. I wanted you to know that I'm okay. Wells headed to the Sky Lobby on the 78th floor, where he found a number of survivors. Wells led the survivors and carried one woman on his back to the one working stairway. The survivors followed him down 17 floors, at which point he dropped off the woman he was carrying and headed back up the stairs to assist others. When he got back to the 78th floor, he had a red bandana around his mouth and nose to protect him from the smoke. He directed more survivors down the stairs to safety. At 9.59am, survivors were pouring out of the stairwell to the street as Wells headed back into the building and up the stairs to help more people escape. It was then that the South Tower collapsed. His body was found on the 19th of March 2002. 
His family had no idea what had happened to him or how heroic he'd been in saving other people's lives until they read the accounts in the New York Times recalling the bravery of the man with the red bandana. Following these accounts, Wells' mother, Alison, met with the survivors who confirmed the hero that day had been her son. There's not much else to say here besides what a hero. The the fact that anyone walked back into that building on that day is, yeah, way, yeah unbelievable. Absolutely unbelievable. And he did it twice and that shows, he was 24 and he just shows like one absolute babe. Do you know what I mean? Like what a babe. The story of Wells Crowther became legendary with him even being posthumously named an honorary New York City firefighter. As the recognition of Wells began to rise, Tanya Head's story of that day seemed to change to include a man with a red bandana. In the early versions of her story, when asked about the man in the red bandana, she reported that she had seen him that day. In later versions of her story, she said he had actually put out the fire on her back and saved her life. Again, like we keep saying, it's hard to spot someone who's an imposter in this situation. Would you even discredit someone just because their story changed a bit? Like, it's a very traumatic event. She's changed the story a little bit. Would that be an alarm bell for you, do you think? Not really. Not at this point. Um, Because I think, like you said, like she is probably, if she wasn't a liar, she would probably get her story wrong because you'd probably remember things differently. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Tours of Ground Zero featured Tanya's story and her tale was being recorded many times a day to hundreds of visitors. Eventually, the story of Tanya reached the parents of Wells Crowther. It appeared there was another person who survived, thanks to the bravery of their son. The Crowthers were very excited to meet Tanya, but initially, Tanya seemed reluctant. However, in March 2006, she agreed to meet them. However, she insisted they meet in private. She told Wells' parents her story of that day. She told them how she felt someone thumping her side and when she turned, she saw the man in the bandana putting out the flames on her arm. She told them she had photo of Wells in her house to remind her of the man who saved her life. She also told the family she would frame an item of clothing she was wearing that day. The family could have it as it would have been one of the last things he had ever touched. She never did. In 2006, Tanya Head was voted president of the 9-11 Survivors Network. Why are you doing this, Tanya? She's now the boss of the bloody thing. She wasn't even in there. Anyway, sorry. Calm. Each year, the Crowther family hosts a memorial concert in honour of their son, Wells. In 2006, Tanya attended and agreed to speak. Here's Wells' father, Jefferson, at that memorial concert. Tanya walked to the lectern to speak, but in the last minute, the usually confident Tanya had a crippling bout of nerves and asked a friend to instead speak on her behalf. What's strange is I don't really think anything Tanya is doing would like, you wouldn't be suspicious. Like, of course, she'd get nervous if that if she'd had that experience. And I really don't think you'd ever for one minute like doubt somebody. Cause, and even if you did, you'd get that thought out of your mind, like I've said several times like throughout this episode. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. You would doubt yourself for doubting her, wouldn't you? You'd be like, no, no, ridiculous. And I think probably the reason she's got as far as she has, the reason she's now president of the Survivors Network, is for that very reason. No one's actually going, 
Hang on a minute. People, people just take her at face value because why would she lie? In September 2006, the New York Daily News ran a story detailing Tanya's incredible escape from the South Tower. This was the first time her account had been fully documented in full. For most readers, it was an inspirational piece detailing bravery, courage, determination and selflessness in the face of immense adversity, whilst at the same time exploring the tragic loss of her fiancé. However, it left journalists at the New York Times baffled. They had already spoken with and reported on all of the survivors. Who was Tanya Head? The New York Times began investigating Tanya's story, speaking with numerous members of the Survivors Network and piecing together the many, slight deviations and variations that seemed to exist around Tanya's story. They tried to contact Tanya direct, but she refused to speak to them. She also urged members of the Survivors Network not to speak to the press in relation to her story. On the 27th of September 2007, the New York Times published an article titled in a 9-11 survival tale, the pieces just don't fit. Again, we have linked the article on socials, so feel free to have a read if you like. In the article, the New York Times wrote, No part of her story, it turns out, has been verified. The family and friends of the man to whom she claimed to be engaged say they have never heard of Tanya Head and view the relationship she describes with the man, who truly died in the North Tower, as an impossibility. A spokeswoman for Merrill Lynch and Company, where she told people she worked at the time of the terror attack, said the company had no record of employing a Tanya Head. Tanya Head's lie had been exposed. Americans were stunned as Tanya Head was revealed to be a fraud, never present in the towers and not losing her fiancé or husband in the disaster. The news of Tanya's deception was reported all over the world and days later, a Spanish newspaper discovered that 10 days after 9-11, when Tanya had said she was in hospital recovering from her injuries, she was actually attending business school in Barcelona, nearly 4,000 miles away. In fact, Tanya Head wasn't even her real name. Her name was Alicia Head and it was discovered she was from an affluent Spanish family and as such, she was not even a US citizen. She had flown to the US to enact her lie. It seems fraud runs in the family too. Ten years before Tanya's lie, her family had made headline news in Spain. Her father and brother had ended up in prison following a 24 million euro state fraud. Alicia grew up into a lifestyle of extreme wealth and privilege, the youngest of five children to extremely doting parents. For Alicia, a feeling of inferiority persisted throughout her youth as she often lied to her friends about handsome boyfriends she was seeing or impressive things she'd achieved. Growing up, she was in awe of the US, even having a US flag on her bedroom wall. At the age of 18, Alicia was involved in a car crash in which her arm was severely burned and needed to be surgically reattached. This further damaged her self-confidence. In Spain, she obtained a degree before joining a property development firm. Here, she developed a reputation for being an entitled brat who was unsatisfied with her relatively low-level position. She left that job to enrol in the business degree that she was studying for during 9-11. By 2002, she had graduated, but said her dreams were too big for Barcelona, so she decided to head to the States. 
Like many con artists, Alicia had seemingly learned that she could achieve love, admiration and acceptance from others by lying. In Barcelona, she committed many frauds, including telling people she had been in a 200-mile-per-hour Ferrari car crash in which her boyfriend had died. She also claimed she had fallen off a horse that she said she owned but didn't. For both of these, she pointed to the injury on her arm as evidence. So she's using that injury she's got for evidence for all of her claims, basically. Um, and this, we've seen this so many times before, haven't we? Feeling a bit dejected, feeling a bit low self-esteem and then becoming a con man as a way to justify that familiar. But like all the other stories, like they've got something out of it, like they've got a financial gain out of it. They've managed to get, like the last story, managed to get a family and there was lots of gains attached to that. Well, she's just, what's she got from this? I don't know. And the whole way through it, I'm not sure where she thinks it's going either. Like, I don't, I don't know what she's planning to get out of it. It's really, really strange. The only thing I can think of is if whether she thought she was going to get some compensation. Ah, maybe. Possible. Whether she thought she'd get paid for, you know, being interviewed or I'm not sure. As it turns out, Tanya doesn't appear to have profited in any way from her lies about 9-11. As such, under US law, there's no actual crime that she has committed. It's not known where she is now or what she's up to. Robin Gaby Fisher and Angelo Guglielmo wrote a book about Tanya after becoming friends with her during her massive lie. The book is called The Woman Who Wasn't There. Here are the authors being interviewed on CNN. There is a link to the full interview in the description. The second we met, um, she told me her story. I cried and... You cried? Yeah. I mean, and she only had really like 70 seconds to tell me the story. It was just barely a minute. And, you know, we became friends right after that. Tanya had really emerged as a very well-known name within the 9-11 survivors oh, community. Yeah. She wasn't just a survivor. I mean, she was, what, the president of the Survivors Network. Yeah. What else? She was, I mean, she was everything. She was the ultimate survivor. She was a widow. She was a victim. She she was the leader. She was everything on 9-11. Oh. Did you ever stop and question any of the story um, and uh, her personality? Well, you know, it's a, it's a strange thing. You know, she's sitting in front of your camera and you're, you're, you're interviewing her and, you know, she's bearing her soul. And not for a second did I believe that she was anything more than an authentic 9-11 survivor. Every type of detection you had of her, you overruled because of her trauma. So that is the story of Tanya Head, the woman who wasn't a victim in the tragedy of 9-11. Really strange one, isn't it? Why did she do it? Not entirely sure. She had a, a lack of self-esteem and she felt like she got recognition by lying. But she didn't get any money out of it. I don't know where she thought it was going to go. I don't know. Was she planning to just carry on this lie forever? Like for me, I think this is like the worst so far. Like there's been some ones where you know, the frustrated me and other ones that we've spoke about where their outright ridiculousness is probably, honestly, it's made me laugh a little bit, even though I also recognise the misfortune that's caused. Whereas this is just, I just can't even get my head around it. I, I, I don't get it. We mustn't forget, she did a lot of good for the Survivors Network. She got Survivors' plight being talked about. She got them lots of state funding. She got them to go and visit the site where they weren't allowed to. So for the Survivors, she did quite a lot of good stuff. It was just against the backdrop of deceit and fraud. 
And like, the thing is as well, like to open up about anything you've gone through, it's quite difficult, isn't it? And like pe- people struggle to, t- to like tell people their innermost thoughts, particularly in England, I don't know about in the US, but it is really, really difficult. And so for me, like, it's just like the fact that people have trusted her so, so much. And even though she's done good, like, she's also an absolute witch. You do also have to feel sorry for the sufferers because you think they've been through an incredible trauma already. And now to have this fraud that you've sort of confided in is actually really rough, isn't it? It's also been going on for so long, you know, like things happened like year on year on year. And this is such a massive like grieving process for like the whole world, really. And she's bloody getting there like front seat for no reason. Really, really very strange, isn't it? What was her motivation? I don't suppose we'll ever know. Uh, what do you think? Uh, we'd love to know your thoughts on this case. You can let us know on Twitter or Instagram. We are at Concast. Uh, thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed this episode. And we'll be back with another episode of Cond next week. Bye. <laughs>